How many of you have had poison oak in the last year? Anyone? Isn't it awesome? All right, Second Peter 1. I suspect it would be an interesting conversation if we kind of went around the room and answered the question, what is God's call on my life? And each went around and said, I think God's call on my life is and filled the blanks. One of the reasons I think that would be interesting is because many of us tend to gravitate towards a list of behaviors, of do's and don'ts, of things that we think, this is what Christian people do, and so I'm going to do those things, or these are things Christian people don't do, so I'm going to do everything in my power not to do them. So sometimes our response to God is obligatory, uh, it's duty-bound, And it makes me think of what happens at the end of the day when I look at the kids and I walk into the playroom and I say, all right, guys, it's time to pick up. And nobody looks at me and says, oh, dad, I love you. (sighs) They sink to the ground and begin to move in slow motion. So they'll do what I asked slowly, terribly. They'll do what I asked because they want to get me off their back. They'll do what I ask because they don't want a consequence, and they don't want any consequence from today to certainly carry over to tomorrow. They'll do what I ask because they don't want me to take their Legos and throw them in the fire. There's a lot of reasons they'll do what I ask, but it's mostly out of obligation, right? And so sometimes we go to God this way, and, and we want to keep him happy. We want to think of ourselves as good people. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to be thought of as, as not a good person, so I'll I'll, I'll do what he says. And I hope what we see as we get into 2 Peter, uh, that following God is just so much more than obligation. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1 this week. We were supposed to do the first 15, 16 verses last week, but it was such a great opportunity to have Bill, so we just kind of interrupted our schedule a little bit, and we'll work through the first Uh, 14, 15 verses this week of 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me read the first four verses to you. And I just want us to see here, as we have sung about the grace of God already, the grace of God invites us to share in his glory. The grace of God invites us to share in his glory, not into duty-bound religion, but we're invited to share in his glory. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4. Verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Knowledge is going to be a key part of this week's text and a key part uh, of 2 Peter. May the grace and the peace be multiplied to you, how, in, or through, or by, knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, His divine power has granted all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, there it is again, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Verse 4, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, so that we might 
share in his divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All things that pertain to life and godliness. And so we just got to pause for a minute and back up to Adam and Eve and remember that we are not persons for whom all things pertaining to life and godliness is, is what we deserve, right? Adam and Eve had it good. They were made without sin. They had the ability to not sin. They were not enslaved to it in the way for us where sin is attractive in a way for us that things that are not good for us actually look good to us. Um, They didn't have that. And they walked with God in the garden, but they believed a lie and not an uncommon lie, right? They believed that God was holding out on them that God had something else, that there was something better for them than what God had for them, and so they needed to check it out. They had what was behind door number one. They needed to look and see what was behind door number two also, not believing that what God had for them was truly in their best interest. And so, of course, they lose it all. They're spiritually lost, spiritually broken, Uh, As you know, in their life, things just fall apart right away. This fracture of faith uh, sends a ripple effect through everything, right? One of their sons kills another. They have to leave the garden. They can't get back in. They begin on this perilous journey, uh, even towards physical death. Everything is broken. As we get started in this text from verse 3, when he says, all things have been made for life and godliness, we've just got to have this reminder put in front of us that no matter what our past is, no matter what is in front of us today with sin in our life, choices that we've made, the call of God provides all things for life and godliness. In other words, the call of God doesn't belittle our past, it doesn't ignore our past, it is bigger than our past. And so these weights, these burdens uh, that we carry with us thinking God could never use me, God could never have interest in me, God would never want me, right? This is a lie that the enemy tells us. The enemy tells us you'll never amount to anything. You're good for nothing. God wants nothing to to do with you. You're useless. Peter says that's not true. Through the call of God, all things have been made possible to you for life and for godliness. This text also reminds us that we brought nothing to the table. You heard Grant say the same thing and, and you saw it in the lyrics of the songs we talked, that we brought nothing to the table for our salvation. It was his worthiness in spite of our unworthiness. In no way was it a part of our worthiness. And, and this is just a critical thing to get into our minds because it goes to the heart of salvation, uh, of something that fixes this brokenness that is in us, that makes us new, uh, that pardons an irrepayable debt. Remember, we've made ourselves enemies of the cross, enemies of our creator. We're antagonists toward him. We have brought nothing to the table. It gets to the heart of salvation, and it, it sort of strikes a chord because for some of us, Salvation is kind of like this emergency preparedness kit that we're going to talk about on Saturday from 1 to 3. Shameless plug, if you want to come. But for some of us, salvation is kind of like that emergency preparedness kit. Don't really want to use it. Hope we don't have to. Not entirely sure we need it, but it's not a bad thing to do. 
it couldn't hurt. And so we throw it in the back of the car just in case, right? Just in case something happens that we can't navigate. Just in case something happens that we're not prepared for, it's there. It's like insurance. It's like a get-out-of-jail card. Some of us look at salvation, and it's more of the Santa Claus syndrome. Let's keep God happy. Let's do good things, and maybe we'll get what we want from him. Ooh, I got a doctor's appointment in two weeks. I'm going to be in church. I'm going to be reading my Bible. Prayer is just going to be fantastic. Ten minutes a day, every day. I won't miss for anything. Maybe, maybe I'll get what I want from God. Santa Claus syndrome. And so we're just reminded in this text that no matter what our past was, the call of God is sufficient to deal with that and that we brought nothing to the table because what is wrong with us is not something that we can fix. Only he can fix. The, um, the enemy says we'll never amount to anything. Peter says Jesus is everything for you need for life and godliness. First Peter 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, some of these passages affirm what we're talking about here. First uh, John 5, 11 says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life, right? And, and so that's so critical because we just, some of us are trying to spin our wheels in the mud, our spiritual wheels in the mud, and we're trying to work through things, and we're trying to navigate uh, decisions, we're trying to navigate sin, and it just feels like we're not going anywhere. And Many of you got stuck during the storm and you were in a vehicle and you remember what it was like when you gave your car more gas. It didn't just leap out of its stuck position. It just sank, right? It just got more stuck. The more gas you gave it, the more stuck you got. And so that that is a, a metaphor for how many of us live spiritually, trying to give it more gas, thinking we can get unstuck when what we need is not more gas. What we need is just to hand the keys over to the one who can get us unstuck. And so in 1 John 5, we understand that if we don't have the Son, we don't have life. We're just getting more stuck. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? We, we don't just need to be fixed. We don't just need to become a better version of ourselves, uh, slightly more clean-shaven or more hair or better dressed. We don't need to become better versions of ourselves. We need to become new creations all things pertaining to life and godliness we are made new not just simply better because our problem is not simply that we're bad the problem is that we're spiritually dead we get a clean slate and then john 14 records jesus talking to his disciples and he says it's good for me to go away. And he says, I'm going to pray to the Father to send the Comforter, to send the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to come, and the Spirit is going to guide, and the Spirit is going to direct, and the Spirit is going to teach you. The world doesn't know this Spirit. You will have the Holy Spirit. The world will not. And so not only do we get a clean slate, it's part of life and godliness. We get the Spirit to guide and to direct us. And so we just understand Right? It doesn't take much time in life to realize we're not very good guides. It doesn't take much time in life to realize if we're driving, we're in trouble. Right? It doesn't take very much time in life to realize that we don't have objective eyes when it comes to ourselves. We think the best of ourselves and the worst of everyone else. So we need the Spirit to convict us of sin. How many of you have 
maybe seen something that's true about yourself in the last week or in the last month, and maybe people have told it to you for weeks, for months, for years, maybe for decades. Maybe it was something that you discovered as you were reading Scripture, or just something the Spirit uh, put in you. I had that this week of just the reality of something in my life, and I've heard it a thousand times. I've been at dozens of conferences where this particular topic has been talked on. But I am not objective when it comes to myself. I am inclined to think the best of myself and the worst of others, and I need the Spirit to correct uh, that behavior. In John 14, Jesus says, not only a clean slate, I will give you the Spirit. So in verse 3, he says, His divine calling has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. The power is His, His divine calling. The goal is life and godliness for us. And how how does that happen? Verse 3b says it's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And so knowledge is an interesting topic. Uh, some of us hear the word knowledge and it's like, yes, say it again. One more time. Just just say knowledge. You just love to search the scriptures and to learn new things. You're a learner in all aspects of life. Some of you are not. Some of you would rather get hit in the head with an encyclopedia than be forced to actually have to read an encyclopedia. And so we just approach knowledge differently. But Peter is saying that it is through the knowledge of him who called us that we discover his excellence, that we discover his glory, that we learn what it means. And what's really cool is is this just kind of unlocks the whole Bible for us, because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So what we learn about the Father, we understand, teaches us also about the Son, and so it just unlocks from Genesis to Revelation uh, the entirety of Scripture where we can approach it differently, not as something that is just useful for head knowledge, but something that is useful for knowledge that then guides and directs and determines the course of our life. Jonah is a passage that's just been extra meaningful to me this week. And and so as you approach Jonah and you think, what does that have to do with Jesus? As you approach Jonah and you think, what does that have to do with the the New Testament? Uh, We can step back and we can look at Jonah and say, wow, what do we see in the book of Jonah? God is incredibly compassionate and merciful for Nineveh in contrast to how merciless and how uh, lacking in compassion his prophet Jonah is. And Nineveh doesn't do much to deserve God's compassion, right? They don't complete, like, 90-day probationary period of repentance. It's not like 10 years of sobriety. They just say, oh, yeah, um, we're in trouble. Please don't scorch us. And God relents. And so we see this incredibly compassionate, merciful God, and it ticks Jonah off because Jonah doesn't want God to be compassionate. And God doesn't want, or Jonah doesn't want God to be merciful. And so we say, wow, we serve a God who is so merciful. We serve a God who is so compassionate that when we just take a half step towards him, and Nineveh took no more than a half step, maybe a quarter step, when we just take a half step towards him, he reaches out and grabs us and relents and is slow to anger and is abounding in steadfast love. And so it shapes how we then approach our relationship with Jesus, and it shapes how we approach our relationships with other people as we have seen his glory and we have seen his excellence. And so Peter says it's through this knowledge, understanding who it is we serve, 
the way that he's wired, how that he relates to us, what he's asked of us, is as we discover these things, that we discover the great promises of God that lead to life and to godliness. The enemy says, do everything for your own recognition. Do everything for your own promotion. Do everything for your own glory. Peter says, you don't want any of that. Peter says, you want to share in God's glory. It says, through these great promises, we come to know about, as we grow in the knowledge and the glory and excellence of our Lord, we become partakers of his divine nature. Partakers in his divine nature. Uh, if you saw First Peter open, Second uh, Peter, uh, I want to read the end of verse 4 before we go on to the next part. It says, and when the chief, sorry, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. What does it look like, according to this text, to be partakers of the divine nature? What does it look like, according to this text, to share in God's glory, to share in his divine nature? It doesn't mean that we become gods. It doesn't mean that we're just airlifted out of this world and fast-tracked to the next. It doesn't mean that all of our pain and our suffering and our relationship problems and our job problems and our health problems, it doesn't mean that all those things just go away. It says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. In other words, we can be in it, not of it. Not enslaved to sin. We're not on death row anymore. We're not just awaiting execution anymore, right? We have victory over that eternally, and we have the possibility for victory in this life daily. So for the addict who has just struggled for decades, been enslaved to sin in such a tangible way, in such a visible way, there's hope. We serve a God who is bigger than our addictions. For those of you that maybe have lived clean, fairly clean lives, at least clean on the outside, but as you in your mind know, there's a whole lot under the surface that nobody sees. God is bigger than the things that nobody sees. And that as we are called to share in his glory in this life. And that happens as we overcome sin and share in a daily victory made possible by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You see that it's so much more than just obligatory religion. So much more than just obligatory behavior. Uh, let's continue in Second Peter 5, 6, and 7. I, I want us to see that, that not only does... God's grace invite us into this position where we share in the glory of God. It also enables us to then walk that journey. Because uh, some of you might be saying, invited to share in the glory of God. Yeah, that doesn't sound like my life at all. That doesn't sound like anything I've seen, anything I've observed, anything I've been a part of. Uh, I've been at church for a long time. Share in the glory of God, not so much. I want us to see that the grace of God invites us and enables us. Verses 5, 6 through 7, uh, there's going to be a list of virtues. And, and just pay attention to what is first and what is last. They're all good, but pay attention especially to what is first and last. Verse 5, for this very reason, 
So referencing back to verse 4, because we've escaped corruption, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Do you see what is first? Faith, right? So we see that God's gift of faith precedes the command to live virtuously, that faith is required. Faith is the source of the capacity then to live virtuously. In other words, God puts this calling upon our lives and then he gives us all the tools for the journey. He doesn't send us off on a journey empty-handed. He doesn't command us to get started on a building project with no tools. His grace enables the lifestyle that he calls us to. And he starts with faith and add to our faith uh, virtue. What is virtue other than knowing Jesus and imitating Jesus? Paul in, in 1 Corinthians says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Virtue is this idea of of imitating Christ. And then add virtue with knowledge. And so as we grow in the Lord, we want to become growing, uh, maturing followers of Christ who more and more reflect the love of Jesus uh, to our world. He says, add to virtue knowledge. In other words, continue to study, continue to learn about Jesus, continue to learn about your Savior, continue to understand the way that he works. There's no plateau or there's nowhere we get in our relationship with him where we stop knowing. One of the ideas of his eternality, one of the ideas of the fact that he is infinite in in nature is that there's always more of God to know and discover. And some of you that have been following the Lord for 50 years, for 60 years, for 70 years, can look back over the last couple months and say he has become even more real and special and personal and powerful in the last month. And I've been following him for decades, right? There's always more of him to discover. He says, add to that knowledge self-control, whereby we bring under all of these things that we learn about him under his rule. All of this that we have learned about him, all of this virtue under his rule and authority. And with self-control, then steadfastness, stay the course, long obedience, in the same direction. Self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness, godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection, love. And so it's so fitting that Peter starts talking about knowledge, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God our Savior. Um, It is through knowledge that we discover his great promises. And he says, by the way, the outcome of all knowledge is that it should lead us to love. And so there should be no such thing as someone who says they follow Christ and has just an abundance of knowledge about God who is then not just a rock star when it comes to loving well because knowledge is supposed to lead us to brotherly affection and to loving well. If it hasn't, we're in trouble. If If it hasn't, that's a red flag. Loving is not something that we just look at and think, I, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. It doesn't really come all that natural to me. Uh, I got to work with these knuckleheads. You wouldn't believe what I have to deal with. God, I think, would excuse the fact that it's just really hard to love them. If you've been following the Lord for a while and you've come to know him, knowledge is supposed to lead 
to loving well. If it doesn't lead to loving well, that creates huge questions where we've got to ask ourselves what's really uh, going on in our heart. Here's a couple just references for you to write down uh, that are so significant. First Corinthians 13, 13, the first part of the chapter talks about love and he ends by saying, so now faith, hope, and love uh, remain, but the greatest of these is love. And First John 4, 7, and 8, he says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And so it just gives us this, this ability to pause and, and to step back from life and to say, am I working through this transition where uh, faith has led me to seeking and searching and the greater knowledge about who God is and it's working itself out with brotherly love. It's working itself out uh, and that I'm loving well. And if not, what's the deal? Uh, one of the things uh, for someone like me who's pretty compartmentalized in life, uh, when I hear the word knowledge, the first thing I think about is knowledge must be everything here that I can read about God, everything that maybe was taught in a Bible class, everything that I might hear someone preach or teach on in a podcast, anything that might be written in a journal article uh, or something like that. And so there's this tremendous elevation uh, of my time with the Lord, especially when the Word of God is open or taught or preached. uh, And inadvertently, everything else uh, sort of takes a step back. It's less important. And and as you know, uh, the journey of faith is both lecture and lab. And the lab is a really important part of that process, right? Our, our circumstances, our work, uh, our relationships, our health, uh, our finances, uh, the people that live next door to us, uh, in-laws. I can go on and on and on and on, but that's the lab portion, right, of this lecture lab format that we get with the Lord. And so I just want to encourage you that if you're like me and when you hear the word knowledge, you instantly think to just the things written in Scripture. I just want to say that, that God reveals himself. God speaks to us loud and clear, and God is working out these things so many times in that lab format. And so I, I would just say that uh, the encouragement would be that none of life is a throwaway. No relationships are useless. Uh, the circumstances in your life right now that you dislike the most, none of that is a throwaway. None of that is without opportunity to discover the Lord is faithful in some new and personal and relevant way that leads you to better knowledge of who he is, how he thinks about you, how he relates to you, that then leads to brotherly affection, that leads you to be more equipped to love well. None of life is a throwaway. And your circumstances and your relationships are not random. Some of them you have brought upon yourself. Some of them I have brought upon myself. Some of them we had no power over. Some of them you had no power over. But they are not random. All of those relationships, and maybe a face just pops into your mind right away. All of those circumstances, and maybe an email that you've got to read and reply to tomorrow pops into your mind. Maybe it's a coworker or someone who reports to you. 
none of that is a throwaway. And none of that is random, right? God works in this lecture lab format, and he's working these things out in us. If he calls us to love, if the outpouring of faith is love, if the outcome of maturing faith is love, then he's going to put us around people that are hard to love. He's going to put us in circumstances where loving is not the first thing that uh, comes natural to us, not our first response, he's going to say here. Let's put this into practice. Let's finish the rest of the the text here, uh, verses 8 through 15. If these qualities are yours, and they are increasing, in other words, if they are in abundance, if they're who you are, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see in these last few verses here is part of why this matters so much. And the first thing that he says is if this defines your way of life, it will keep you from being spiritually idle. It will keep you from being spiritually ineffective. Verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Does it mean you will never sin? No, but does it mean the person who walks this path, who is yielding to the Spirit, who is discovering who God is new and afresh each day and responding to that, does it mean that person has a hedge of protection around them as they're walking in step with the Spirit? Does it mean that that person is inclined to step towards God's good and step away from the lies of the enemies? Yes. Verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the path of anyone who will one day be with Jesus in heaven. This is the path of anyone for whom faith is taken root in their hearts. And it doesn't mean that there's not setbacks. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't feel like a roller coaster at some times. It doesn't feel like that plunging part of the roller coaster can go on for days and for weeks and sometimes months and sometimes years. But he said, this is the path to the kingdom of God. Verse 12, therefore, Peter says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to, any time, at any time, recall these things. Do you see that, that God's plan for us is good? Do you see that it's more than just obligatory uh, behavior, uh, reluctant uh, religion? That it's all things pertaining to life and godliness and it's victory, it's freedom in this life and the assurance of that forever and ever and ever and ever and ever one day in heaven with the one who has richly provided this for us. Like it changes our conversation about heaven when we think of being with the one who has made all of this possible being with the one who his worthiness in spite of my unworthiness made all of this possible and so just uh, by way of by way of wrapping up if you're here this morning and you're just spiritually 
spinning your wheels in the mud, and life for you has always been about you can navigate it, you can work your way through it, you've got this, I can do it. I would say, would you consider that when you give it more gas and you are stuck in the snow, your vehicle just sinks? Would you consider handing the keys over to the only one who can get you unstuck? For those of you who maybe have been following the Lord uh, for some time and still feel that sense of stuckness, uh, to even press in to that, where Peter says, all things for life and for godliness. And so to, to have this high expectation of what God wants for us, uh, and then when life doesn't look like that, we step towards him, not away from him. We step towards him believing that he wants to do that good thing in us, even though our natural inclination is to step back and to step away and to believe a lie like what Adam and Eve believe, that there's something better that we just got to find. Uh, or the lies that Peter has already addressed that will never amount to anything, will never measure up. It's an us issue. I would say that following Jesus should feel like a posture, like a position of weakness. Not because he's strong, but because daily we are discovering that we are weak, we are insufficient, and that's right where he wants us because it's his strength, not ours. And when it's his strength, not ours, people see him, not us, and we are living proof of a loving God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Take it deep into our hearts and deep into our minds. And as we consider this idea of knowledge, Lord, would you make us searchers, seekers. Give us this insatiable appetite, Lord, to know who you are and to understand the way that you work, Lord, from cover to cover, that this is uh, a crash course it is God 101, 201, 301, 401, that everything is needed for life and godliness, that everything has been so richly provided. Lord, I confess that our bar is low. Lord, we have low expectations of who you are and what you want to do in us and through us. And so I pray that you would this morning raise that bar and even in our dissatisfaction that that would be something that would push us and pull us towards you, knowing and believing that there's more, that there's so much more than just obligation and duty-bound religion. Lord, that we are called to having all things life and godliness. And Lord, that the source, the power is your son's divine power and not ours. So would you make us quick to let go and quick to take hold of you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.